Let's turn our Bibles to First Corinthians or First Samuel, excuse me, chapter sixteen. First Samuel, chapter sixteen. Let's pray together. Father, it's with joy and excitement that we come together to fellowship as your sons and your daughters. Thank you for your mercies that are new this morning. Lord, thank you for Rafa and his family. And as they're they're here this week, would you encourage them and bless them? Would you bless Calvary Chapel Chihuahua this morning? And as we spend time in your word, would you help us to see things the way that, that you see things? May we start to understand what your eyesight is and your perspective. God, would you bring your encouragement and your challenge Would you send your spirit to lead us and guide us in truth? God, please set me aside and give me strength and clarity in teaching your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember specifically the time in my life when I started looking at the computer monitor and looking at books, and all of a sudden things were starting to get a little bit fuzzy. I was about 19. I was in my second semester of Bible college doing a lot of reading and studying, which I hadn't done a lot of prior to that point in my life. Found a way to get through junior high and high school without uh, doing a whole lot of studying. But that's another story. And my eyesight was starting to go. So I go to the optometrist, and sure enough, I get my first set of glasses. I remember putting them on, going out into the parking lot. I was living in Salt Lake City at the time. And there was a whole world that I'd been missing out on for a while. It's like, man, the trees, they are so crisp, and they are so clear. They're just amazing. And by the way, had you heard about the optometrist that dropped his lenses into the grinder? It was a real spectacle. <laughs> Ooh. So this morning, we're going to talk about God's eyesight, God's perspective. How does God see things? And just like me getting my first set of glasses, I think the way that God looks at the world, our lives, situations, is completely different of how we look at things. And I hope that our spiritual perspective becomes clearer as we look at God's eyesight. The story is this. God's rejected Saul to be king, speaks to Samuel and says, Samuel, I want you to go to the house of Jesse to anoint the new king. And he's going to anoint King David. And God looks at the heart. He doesn't look at the outward appearance. So let's begin in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I've rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I've provided myself a king among his sons. Samuel is at a place where his heart is completely broken over the spiritual condition of Saul. Saul is just grossly compromised. Samuel actually cried all night over the spiritual condition of Saul. And that was appropriate at the time. That was the appropriate response at the time. It showed a soft heart before God. But now he continues in this place of mourning and God says, the time of mourning is done. And he's asking this question of Samuel, how long are you gonna mourn over Saul? It's time for you to go. It's time for you to get up, get your anointing oil, go to Bethlehem, to Jesse's house and look for the next king. And this is what I want us to be challenged with this morning is God's always a forward motion God. He's always moving into the future. And a lot of times we get stuck in a place where we're grieving and mourning things and God's saying, all right, 
it's now time for you to stop mourning and to start moving, to go on to the future. And what I'm not speaking about is there's certain things that it's very appropriate to mourn. You lose a loved one, man, that's appropriate to, to mourn and for God to meet us in, in that place. You have a, a real physical challenge in your life. Your, your health goes. That's something to mourn. But there's a lot of things in our lives that we get stuck in this pit of mourning, and it inhibits us. We're paralyzed from moving into the future because we can't let go of the pain of the past. What are some of those things potentially in your life and in my life? It, it may be that there's a spiritual leader there's a mentor, there's a Saul-like figure in your life who is compromised greatly. It destroys your heart to the point where you lose sight of the Lord and you can't keep moving in your own relationship with the Lord. How many times have you talked with someone or gone through that in your own life where someone goes sideways and they say, well, I was, I was hurt by a pastor. I was hurt by a mentor. I was hurt by someone who was discipling me or they stopped following the Lord, so I don't go to church anymore. I completely stopped following Jesus Christ, and I wonder if God's message to us in that situation would be similar in saying, it's time to stop mourning Saul, it's time to get up and keep moving with the things that God has in your heart and life. God is never limited, his work is never married to one person. So even though Saul has failed, it doesn't mean that God's done working amongst the children of Israel, amen? And when we fail or somebody else fails in our lives, it, it doesn't mean that God's done. And, and God sees a way forward here, even though Samuel doesn't see a way forward. Maybe it's a, a loss of job. That's so difficult. You get laid off, you, you get fired, the, the work goes away, and that can be devastating to the point where there's no motivation to move forward. It's hard to believe that God has something next. Maybe there's been six months of unemployment and God's saying, it's never gonna be like it was in the past. Maybe you're not gonna make the, the same amount of money, but it's time to get up. It's time to move forward and look for what God has next. Friendship can be sticky, can't it? It can be difficult. And maybe there is a loss of a friendship and so the heart gets calloused and it mourns and decides to stop moving on and moving forward. But that was the message to Saul and it can be the message for us as well. This comes out throughout scripture. We look in Exodus chapter 14. It's, it's quite a moment in the nation of Israel and God speaks to Moses and he says this, and the Lord said, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. God had just delivered them out of Egypt, led them to the Red Sea through the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Here comes Pharaoh on their backside. In the rear view mirror is Pharaoh, mad, angry, ticked off with his army. In front of them is the Red Sea and Moses is mourning. Moses is crying. Can you imagine the pressure on Moses? Here he is the leader and he's led the children of Israel to come die at this moment. There seems like there's no way forward, but God says it's not a time for crying. It's a time to press on into the future. And God then parted the Red Sea. God's not wanting them to look back. He's wanting them to, to look forward. God's not a rear view mirror God. He's always a God of the present and a God of what's gonna happen in the future. Paul tells us the one thing that he did in his life. 
If the Apostle Paul was here and he said, this is the most important thing in my life, this is the one thing that I made sure to do, we would probably stop and listen. If Steve Jobs was here and he said, you know, this is the one thing that I did in my life, that would be intriguing. We've been watching a documentary, a PBS documentary on on Walt Disney. It was like three hours long. Anybody ever geek out on documentaries? We did that yesterday and today, American Experience, and the life story of of Walt Disney. If Walt Disney was here and he said, this is the one thing that I would do in my life, we'd probably listen. How much more the Apostle Paul? This is what he says in Philippians 3. Not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Do you think Paul had a lot of things in his life that he could have mourned over? That he could have gotten stuck in the pit of mourning? Yeah, he persecuted the church. He killed Christians. He had a lot of Christians after he got saved that didn't like him, that despised him, that came against him. He says, this is the one thing I do. I forget those things that are past, and I press forward. I make sure that I'm moving forward with the Lord so I can discover the purpose that he laid hold of me. God saved you for a purpose. He's got a plan for our lives. We want to make sure to not miss that. So how is Samuel going to move forward? He's to go to Bethlehem to anoint the new king. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. God prophesied that Jesus, his son, would be born in Bethlehem. The ultimate king comes from Bethlehem, this small town about five miles outside of Jerusalem. He's also to go to the house of Jesse, which is hugely significant because Jesse is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. If you remember that story, Ruth was a widow, a Moabitess widow. She'd married an Israelite. Her husband had died, so she comes with her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Israel, back to, to Bethlehem, where she meets Boaz. Boaz marries her. They have a child, Obed. Obed then has Jesse. This is Jesse. Jesse has David. And then from David, we have the lineage of Jesus Christ. So this is a tremendous story of God's redemption and God working in a very difficult situation. Verse two, and Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Samuel sees difficulty in moving forward. If I go to anoint a new king, Saul's going to get very angry and he's going to kill me. This shows the heart condition of Saul. Saul's going to protect the throne at all costs. He's made the throne about himself and he's saying, I'm going to protect this, this power. I like the example of Samuel. Samuel's human. Even though he was a great man of God, He was human, and he had fears and concerns, and he talks it over with the Lord. So we've got concerns about moving forward. What do we do with those concerns? We talk it over with the Lord. God answers and says, tell everybody that you're going to to sacrifice. Was God telling Samuel to lie? No. He was indeed going to sacrifice. And at this sacrifice, David's going to be anointed as king. Verse 3 Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. It's very clear in our text and the scriptures that God's going to choose this next king. 
God allowed Israel to choose Saul. Saul was man's choice, but David is God's choice. In chapter 13, verse 14, when God rejected Saul, it's very clear. God said, I'm going to seek after someone who's after my own heart. God hasn't changed, and he's still seeking people that are after his heart. David wasn't seeking to be king. David was seeking a relationship with God, and that's exactly what God was looking for. God is going to direct this process. God's not interested in Saul number two. He's not looking for another man after the flesh. He's looking for a man after his heart. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? Samuel came with quite a reputation. Why? Because of what he did to Agag. Remember that last week? Cut Agag up in pieces. So here comes Samuel like, Whoa, we okay, bro? You me? We all right? You in a good mood today, Samuel? Do you come in peace? And, okay, good. We're, we're okay. Verse 5. And he said, peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Samuel, this man of maturity, this man who had walked with the Lord, man who didn't compromise, he looks at Eliab, the oldest son, and he says, this is it. This is the next king of Israel. For sure, this is God's choice. But it's not going to be the case. It's not who the, the Lord has chosen. We have to understand what it meant to be the oldest son at this time. It was understood that the oldest son would have the birthright, that would take responsibility for the family. To think of outside of the oldest was extremely outside of the box, not something that someone would consider. It seems like from on paper, Eliab has everything together. The most experienced, he's good looking, you pull out his resume, he's got all of the skills that would be necessary for the choosing of, of a king. If people were, were looking for the next pastor, they would choose Eliab. He, he was the right choice, the, the wise choice. But it wasn't God's choice. In verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I've refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So notice the command that's given to Samuel. Don't look at his appearance or his physical stature. So he must have had a great appearance and a great physical stature. And when we think about God's perspective, how does God see things? Well, first, it's always forward motion. God's always got a plan. He's always moving things forward for his glory. Then God's lens, the way he sees us and this, the way that he sees the world, he says, don't look at the outward appearance. May I suggest to you this morning that you will miss what God's doing in the situation if you only look at the physical, if you only look at the outward appearance. And how would this possibly apply to our hearts and, and our lives? Is we have to make decisions about people, don't we? If you're single and you're considering getting married, the, the easy thing to do is just look at the physical appearance. Well, you're hot. No, you're hot. No, 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 you're hot. We, we better get married. This is the Lord's will, right? And all you've done is look at the, the physical appearance. 
And that's an aspect in marriage. I think it's important to marry somebody that you're attracted to, but by all means, it's not the only factor. I hate to share this with you, but if you're a young person, you're the most attractive that you're ever going to be. It is a downhill slide from there. <laughs> Good news, isn't it? It's, I'm at the point in my life now where people come in my office and we have a wedding photo up and they go, you are so young. Like, what, are you, what are you saying? I'm old now? You know, it, it's the best physically you're going to be uh, and when you're in those young, young ages. And so if you just make a decision off of the physical, you're going to miss what God really intends. You want to look at the heart. Does this person love the Lord? Do they love Jesus more than they love you? Is it seen clearly in their actions? What's the priority of their heart and their life? Don't just look at the outward appearance. Maybe you're in a position where you do some hiring. Maybe you own your own business or you're a manager in your company, a boss in your company, and you are looking at resumes. And even though it's in a secular setting, it's not, a, it's not inside of the church, if you would, it would be important not to just evaluate the outward appearance, not to just evaluate the natural. Look at the heart of somebody. Look at who they are as a person. Look at their character before you just make that decision to, to hire Friendship is important. Who, who are those that you let into the inner circle of your life? You don't want to just look at the outward appearance. You don't want to just go, well, we're the same demographic. You know, we're kind of at the same stage of life. We, we like the same things. You're just considering the natural things. You're just looking at the physical things. You want to look at the heart. The, the best friends are going to be those that, that love Christ. Don't just look at the physical appearance. But then what are we to look at? What does God see? So the Lord doesn't see as man sees, for he looks not at the outward appearance, but he looks at the heart. That's what God's always concerned about, is he's concerned with the heart. Jesus summed up what the greatest commandment is. He was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That sums up all of the commandments. What is God concerned about? He's concerned with the heart. So we don't look at the outward appearance in our own life, and we don't look at the outward appearance in other people's life. We look at the heart. So what does God see this morning in our hearts? Does he see worry, anxiety, fear, pride, bitterness, lust, selfishness? Or does he see with those things, because we all have those things, a heart that loves God. A heart that says, God, I want to know you. God, I want to be surrendered to you. I want to follow you. I want to walk in obedience. As we look at the character of David, even at this young age, he was a man that was playing his harp out in the fields. He was a man that was worshiping the Lord. He was a man that understood that God was, was his shepherd. And that's what we need to be looking at and evaluating. Where's my heart with the Lord? Proverbs 4 tells us this, keep your heart with all diligence because out of it flows the issues of life. If physically your heart's not so good and you have a heart condition, you probably go in and get monitored from time to time. You take that into evaluation. Well, spiritually, we all have a heart condition. It's called sin, don't we? It's deceitfully wicked above all things. We've got to be checking our heart. Where's my heart with God? Not just how I feel about my heart, but how, what does God say? about my heart. That's why I got to get in the word. The word begins to dissect my heart and divide my heart before the Lord. But then also, 
as we look to other people that we don't just look at the outward appearance, but we look at the heart. How many Davids have we missed in our lives because we don't see things the way God sees things? We've gone for Eliab. We've said, that's, that's the choice. And we've missed this other person because we failed to look through God's lens. I think this is extremely difficult in our culture because we only go skin deep. We only look at the outward appearance. Some of you, the way that you feel about yourself is only based on what you see in the mirror because that's what society tells you. So you you look at the mirror and if you like what you see, then you feel pretty good about yourself. But you don't like what you see and you feel terrible about yourself. Who you are as a person is not just the outward appearance. It's the heart. And where else do you hear that? Where do you else do you hear that the heart is important? We're obsessed with the exterior. We're obsessed with, with how we look. And we very rarely start to see, man, I'm made in God's image. Do you look in the mirror and go, man, I'm made in God's image. Lord, thank you that I'm not like everybody else. Thank you that I don't have to spend all this money to try to look like everybody else. You just saved a ton of money right there. You can rejoice in the fact this, this is how God has made me. It breaks my heart to, to see so many men and women struggle with so many things that come based on the, the outward appearance. Uh, so many women going to the place where they're struggling with anorexia and making themselves throw up and young gals growing up and they, they look in the mirror and they're, they're extremely thin and they, they, yet they feel like they're not. And the, so they start to make themselves throw up. Where does that all come from? It comes from this, we're pushed the outward appearance. It doesn't really matter who you are as a person. If you've got the outward appearance, man, everything's great. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Inward beauty is what matters. A heart for God is what matters. We've got to learn to see ourselves differently and to see others differently. God looks at the heart. Verse 8, so Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. I picture Abinadab now has a bounce in his step. Abinadab is probably thinking that Eliab would get anointed to be king as well. He's the oldest. That was assumed would take place, but God clearly said, it's not Eliab. He's going, man, maybe it's me, but God says, nope, he's not it either. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. So now we're through the first three sons. How many sons are there? Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Can we pause for just a moment? How crazy was this household with seven sons? And we're going to find that there was actually eight sons, that David was the eighth son I imagine a lot of wrestling, a lot of WWF, a lot of take this outside, right? A lot of broken things through, through the house. The confusion for Samuel at this moment, God, you sent me to the house of Jesse. You said it was going to be one of his sons, but yet seven have passed before me, and each one you've said, this is not it. And a lot of times when we're looking for what God's doing in a situation and who God's choosing, we get to that place of going, God, it seems like there's no options. Who, who is it that you desire to, to be king? And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Samuel presses in, he says, are you sure you didn't leave out one of your boys? Oh yeah, there's David. 
He, he's, he's out keeping the sheep. David wasn't even welcome to the party. That's how much they didn't think that it was a possibility that David could be the king of Israel. He's the youngest. I often find throughout scripture, throughout personal experience, throughout church history, that God often chooses someone that man wouldn't choose. God doesn't live on paper. He doesn't live on a resume. Why does God do that? God chooses the weak and the foolish to confound the wise for his own glory. It's about God's glory. God's going to choose David, a man after God's own heart, a faithful man. He's going to use David for his own glory. Maybe you relate to David. You're the one that's always left out. You don't stand out. You're not the Eliab. But yet God's saying, I've got a plan for your life. I can use you in spite of you if you will be available to the Lord. Don't write yourself off. Don't write others off. So here comes David in from where? Keeping the sheep. Keeping the sheep. This shows us about who David is as a person. Keeping the sheep was probably not the most desired job. That's why the youngest has it. Also, it shows us that Jesse wasn't so rich that he could afford to have servants keep the sheep. He had to send his sons to, to keep the sheep. But David was extremely faithful in caring for the sheep. And we say, how do we know? From the next chapter, chapter 16, with David and, or chapter 17, with David and Goliath, David's speaking to Saul, and he describes the way he treated the sheep. It says, the sheep were attacked by a bear and a lion, and he risked his own life to take care of the sheep. That's faithfulness. He's a young boy, a teenage boy. It'd be easy if a bear comes, my tendency would be, here, you can have this sheep, and then we're going to all run. This is my least favorite sheep. It's the one that always causes problems. Here, take him and eat him, and while you're eating him, we'll, we'll, we'll just bolt for it, right? But David risks his own life because of his love for the sheep, ultimately pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd that laid down his life for the sheep. David becomes Saul's armor bearer, and even after he's in this great position as the armor bearer, he leaves Saul to go back to see how his sheep are doing. And this really shows us how God sees things. God sees the heart, and God honors faithfulness in small things. Jesus said, if you're faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much. But if you're not faithful in the little things, you won't be faithful with much. If we want to be a person that God can use for his glory, we have to be faithful right where we're at. God calls men and women in the scripture that were faithful right where they were at in the small tasks. The small tasks are irrelevant. The size of the task is irrelevant. It doesn't matter to God if it's something that everybody would desire to do or something that no one would desire to do, what God monitors is faithfulness. Isn't that true? So it could be a cup of cold water to a child and God says, are you faithful to do that? I see that. I'm going to honor that. And quite honestly, the bigger opportunities, more people would be faithful to do those things. But the little things, little things oftentimes disguise themselves. Great opportunities come from little things. Do you think that God would have chosen David to be king if he was unfaithful as a shepherd? No. He had to be faithful right where he was at in order for it to lead to the next thing in his life. Elisha, when he was called to be a prophet, to take the mantle of Elijah, 
was plowing the field with oxen. He was being faithful. It's almost like he had no idea that it was coming. Did you hear Rafa share? I had no idea that I was going to be a pastor. And that wasn't my plan. I was, I was here loving the Lord, loving my wife, loving this church. And here comes Sean saying, hey, would you consider being the pastor of Calvary Chapel Chihuahua? James and John and Peter, they're fishermen at the Sea of Galilee when Jesus called them. They were being faithful to go and work and provide for their families. And Jesus said, come and follow me. Jesus could have chosen anybody to be his core disciples, but he chose fishermen. Most people would not choose fishermen to be their disciples, to take the ministry, the mantle of Jesus Christ after he ascended into heaven. But God says, I would take faithful fishermen Instead of all of these guys in other scenarios, God takes faithful people and he uses them for their glory. Don't overlook those small tasks. As I look at the life of David, I wonder if he looked back at this time of his life with the sheep going, oh, that's when it was really good. It was so simple then. A lot of times we despise the days of small things, but then we look back in our lives and we go, you know, that job that was kind of mundane, that was so nice. It wasn't stressful. I didn't think about it when I went home. And God showed me so many things about himself inside of that job. Because once he gets anointed as king, Goliath is defeated, gets involved in Saul's life. Saul tries to kill him. He's on the run. Then he has all of this responsibility. I'm sure he looked back at this place of being with the sheep and going, man, I thought that was terrible, but that was actually pretty good. Taking care of sheep gave him the opportunity to prove himself faithful, but it also gave David the opportunity to develop his heart as a worshiper. How do you think David got to this place where he was a man after God's own heart? Hanging out with the sheep provided him a lot of time to be alone, a lot of time to think, a lot of time to meditate upon the Lord, and he took advantage of it. He learned about who God was from the sheep. How do we know? Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still, still waters. How did David connect that? Because that's what he was doing for the sheep. And it dawned on him, this is what God is doing for me. Are we looking for God to develop our hearts in the midst of those mundane tasks? Some of the best teachers that we'll ever experience aren't books. It's doing something that we maybe wouldn't want to do that forms and trains our character. He learned about the shepherd. Psalms 19, it tells us that David looked up into the skies and he wrote this. He wrote this song. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all of the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Taking care of the sheep gave him the opportunity to develop his heart as a worshiper. Maybe you feel like you're at a dead end. I'm the youngest. I've got the least task. I'm always forgotten. And God's saying, I'm giving you an opportunity to prove yourself faithful. I'm giving you an opportunity to develop your heart as a worshiper. David was teachable. Keeping the sheep helped him develop his skills that God would use for him to be king. As we get to the point 
where he takes on Goliath, he uses a sling, a slingshot, and a rock. Where did he learn those skills? As a shepherd boy, can't you picture him? Sitting out there with the sheep, and then all of a sudden, he got really good. He got really confident with slinging that stone. Saw God work with the lion and the bear. He's so skillful with the harp. He's the best at playing the harp in all of Israel. Saul wants someone to come play the harp, and someone comes, I heard this kid in Bethlehem playing the harp. Where do you think he learned to play the harp? What else are you gonna do? You're out there with the sheep. Hey, how you guys doing? Great. So he'd get his harp out, and he would play into the Lord, and he would worship the Lord. And that's where God develops leaders. That's where God develops people that can be used by the Lord. I'm so thankful for the season in my life where God allowed me to do some just dead-end jobs. Before I came on staff at, at the church, I was in Idaho, just working, waiting tables. I had a job working with bees for a while that was very interesting. It was an agricultural community. It wasn't near as exciting as it sounds. We worked with bees in, in the larva stage. So you would put the, the, the larva into these styrofoam crate things and then deliver the styrofoam out to these huts. And then the bees would come out and be born and they would pollinate the alfalfa fields. Some really slow days, really quiet days. And after I'd finished that, then I'd drive into town and I would wait tables at a fondue restaurant. It was kind of this oxymoron, Nampa, Idaho, a real rural, you know, farming type of community. And then you've got this really fancy fondue restaurant. My brother's friend from college managed the restaurant. And so that's how I, I got the job. Imagine six, three tall drink of water coming up into wait tables. It was a little bit awkward. This tall, clumsy guy waiting tables at a fine dine restaurant. And people would have to cook their own meat for the main course. So imagine this tough Idaho guy with his belt buckle going, what? I got to cook my own meat? I'm not paying you 50 bucks per person to cook my own meat. Sorry, it's just the way it is, you know? And I can remember spilling Cokes on this hot grill, six people sitting down for this fi fine meal. Talk about ruining an evening. And a lot of times at that point, I didn't feel like my life was going anywhere. Didn't, didn't really seem like you know, God, God's going to use my life. But God was teaching me, and, and he was training me. And I think this is the challenge in our lives, is even if it doesn't lead to anywhere, would we be faithful unto the Lord because of our love for him? Amen. To where we could enter into heaven and say, you know what, God, I don't know why you had me stuck in this job that I didn't like for my whole life, but I did it unto you. Do you know that there has to be believers that laid railroad track for their whole life? during that period of time in our country that probably didn't enjoy it very much, but said, I'm going to do this unto the Lord. I'm going to do my, I'm going to allow my work to be the worship unto the Lord. And they get to heaven and God says, man, you're being faithful. Be faithful in the little things. Not enough can be said about that. Verse 12, so he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. He had red hair. So can you picture King David he was with red hair, bright eyes, good looking. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him. He is the one. He's the man after my own heart. So the scripture is not saying that physical appearance is bad. David was a good looking young man as well. And every once in a while you'll meet believers that just decide to you know, not in the sense comb their hair, brush their teeth, take a shower, and they're like, hey, God looks at the heart. 
Well, he does look at the heart, but man looks at the outward appearance. So it's not wrong to take care of yourself physically. It's wrong to put the physical before the spiritual. In verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. What a day for David. Taking care of the sheep. Knows that Samuel has come to his house. There's no way that he missed that. But he also knows he didn't even get invited to the party. They're going to have this sacrifice and this great experience with Samuel. But I'm out here with the sheep. Then all of a sudden, he gets a text. It's dad. Dad says, come on. So he comes over. As he walks in the room, Samuel says, that's it. You're, you're the king. Now he's being anointed to be the king of Israel. The spirit of God comes upon him. He had to feel the spirit of God. He had to feel God's spirit moving in his heart and his life and coming upon him. What's all this about? And at this point, this is still very private and Saul is still very much the king. God's gonna be the one that's gonna sort all that out. All God said is anoint David. David goes back to keeping sheep. And that's where we'll pick up on the, on the story from here. But David's life changes from this point forward. This chapter teaches us about God's choosing, his eyesight. God's work is never married to one man, to one individual. He's always moving forward. God's moving forward. God looks at the heart. He looks at faithfulness and little things. So here's a few applications. Is stop mourning and start moving. Stop mourning and start moving. Are you mourning in an area of your life where God says, you know what, it's time to be done. Samuel, you don't need to be mourning for Saul anymore. You need to start looking for what I'm doing in this situation. Where's the David in your situation? Where's the David in my situation? Do we need to move forward? It's time to get up. We need to see the heart, not just the skin. We can't live our lives just looking at the outward appearance. We have to look at our own hearts. We have to look at other people's hearts. And then don't despise the day of small things. Maybe you feel like David and you're keeping sheep. You're the youngest. You're the overlooked. Keep doing it under the Lord. God sees. Don't despise the day of small things. We're going to take communion together. This is a wonderful opportunity to deal with the heart, to allow God to minister to our hearts. That's what God cares about and what he's concerned with. And what I think is so neat about communion is it so accurately expresses God's heart that he loves us. Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed. And as communion is passed, it's an opportunity to focus on the crucifixion of Christ, to remember what he's done, to examine ourselves and say, God, what's in my heart? What do you see? And do I have a heart after you? But before we go to communion, you may not know Christ as your savior. And again, going to this message of God being concerned with the heart, this may be very strange for you to hear from a pastor, but God's not concerned with your church attendance, first and foremost. That's not what God's passionate about. He's not going, well, I sure hope that you come to church every Sunday. You know what he's really hoping and desiring for? Is that you know his son, Jesus. That you have the personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that you understand going to church cannot save you. God's not going to allow you into heaven because you went to church. That may be one of the easiest ways for the enemy to deceive us. Well, God, I went to church. 
I was a good person. I did good things. The only thing that can save us is the death of Jesus Christ. If we could save ourselves, then why would Jesus have to die? It's grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. God gave his son to die upon the cross. The scripture teaches us that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, not just a physical death, but eternally being separated from God, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus is saying that you should know if you have everlasting life, if you believe in Christ, that you trust that he died for your sins, that he rose again. If you've never made that decision, that's what God longs for, for you to turn from your sin, to trust Christ, Jesus save me, I'm calling upon your name, I wanna be your child. Be the Lord of my life, which means take control of my life. So right now as we pray, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to respond. If you know Christ, if you'd be praying with me, I'm gonna ask that you'd raise your hand as a point of decision, not to me or to anybody else, but to the Lord, saying, I'm calling out to you. I'm choosing to put my trust in you. Would you please save me? So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you're after a heart relationship with us. We know that salvation is your work. It's what you do. God, would you knock upon hearts today? Would you show your love in a way that words can't express? If you would like to receive Christ as your Savior, call out to him, Jesus save me. Would, would you raise your hand and hold it up high and leave it up? And I'm going to pray with you. Praise the Lord. Praise God right here. Anybody else today that says that's me? Praise the Lord. Right there in the back. Praise the Lord. You're in the back as well. Praise God too over here. If your hands raised, pray this with me. Jesus, I believe that you're God, that you died for my sins and rose again. I trust you for salvation. I believe in you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. I turn from my sin and invite you to be the Lord of my life. You can put your hands down. And Father, we just thank you for those that have called out to you have trusted in your son, Jesus. We trust your word that you tell us as we believe that we have everlasting life. Lord, would you bless them? Would you encourage them? Would you allow your spirit to fall upon them? In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. God's good.